sometimes you just don't want to hear people explain away your anxiety is something that can just be dealt with because that's isolating. That was a little slice out of this interview with Jordan Reed. She's the co-author of a book I stumbled across recently called The Big Activity Book for Anxious People. The reason I wanted to talk with Jordan is because she isn't an expert looking in at anxiety from the outside. She's someone who lives with it. And that is what this conversation is about, living with and navigating the ins and outs of anxiety. Picking up on some of the blogs Jordan has written on her mega successful lifestyle blog, Ramshackle Glam, about her journey with anxiety, there was a paragraph that popped out to me. And I quote, my worries used to scream so loudly inside my head that I couldn't hear anything else, certainly not anything approaching logic. But now for the first time and as long as I can remember, I'm able to hold a fear in my mind, turn it over and examine it and then either deal with it or put it away in a shelf to be explored at some later date. I can let it, whatever it is, go. She wrote that a number of years ago, and obviously since then, she's paired up with her co-author, Erin Williams, to write an activity book to help you out when you're dealing with your own anxiety. Now, this is a conversation that touches on so many different things, including the anxiety of dating, being a parent, alcohol and its relationship with anxiety, and contemplating our own mortality, just to name a few. Jordan shares how she used to be into aggressive self-care, but how she's now let that go. How there used to be a tribunal of assholes living in her head, but they're quieter now. And how hope can be an antidote to anxiety. And that numbing ourselves out with the alcohol doesn't really help anything for too long. Super quick note, I want to say this isn't the clearest recording Skype has ever given me. So apologies, but it's still a wonderful listen. So stay tuned for all of that goodness and more from Jordan Reed. Jordan, it's a treat to have you on Here to Thrive. Thank you for coming to talk to us today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Anxiety. You wrote a book all about activities to help people who struggle with anxiety. Can we talk about uh, why you might have felt called to do that? Oh, I don't know. I know nothing about this personally. So my co-author, Erin Williams, and I had written a book called The Big Fat Activity Book for Pregnant People. And we sort of really went there. We went off the, I guess, the beaten path of what you typically talk about in a pregnancy book. And we were like, well, what do we want to do next? What's, what's something that we really both know a lot about? And we were like, oh, anxiety. Oh, well, that obviously. And I think that she and I both have the perspective that while well, anxiety is not, uh, not a walk in the park to deal with, if, you, if you've dealt with clinical anxiety for years, as, as I have, it's also really funny. It is. It's just funny and, and helped me personally over the years finding the humor at it, in it and being able to make fun of myself a bit. So the hope with this book was that we would help other people do that as well. That's what I did love about the activity book is it's hilarious. Like you kind of can't help but open it and flick through a, a few pages and then kind of just be chuckling. And there's something I think that's so fun about lightening the mood because anxiety can feel like a heavy emotion, right? 
Sure. And it's sort of the human condition right now. You know, I mean, we, I, I personally, it's like my phone dings. I'm like, cool. What fresh hell is this today? And it, it does feel relentless. And I think that whereas anxiety maybe used to be something that was confined to, you know, people with a mental disorder, maybe that's how it was viewed 10 years ago. Now it's just, it's just something that I think everyone can relate to, to some degree. You know, I was recently at Rachel Hollis's Health and Wellness Day. She was in Minneapolis doing a conference and I was there with my girlfriend and she asked this audience of three and a half thousand women to put up their hand if they had experienced any of the following and she said anxiety and I almost started crying when I looked around the room and there was 85 plus percent of that audience and a safe space had their hands up and we were like, I said to my girlfriend, holy moly, I never knew how many people are living with this feeling. Yeah. And especially, you know, I think a lot of the openness that we're seeing with regards to mental health nowadays is a direct rejection of this culture of perfection and, you know, outward appearances that has arisen over the past couple of years, which I feel hugely culpable in being someone who's been a blogger for 10 years. And I've certainly posted the filtered family images. We're so happy and everything's so great. And I think people are exhausted. People are exhausted by that. And it's just so helpful to finally come out with it. And I I remember when I first moved, I was in New York and then I moved out to San Jose. And I remember having this very uh, definitive thought where I was like, I am going to let my freak flag fly in my new environment with these new people. I am so tired of this pretend Jordan, whatever, like the kind of mom who makes perfect bento box lunches and gives a crap about organic. I don't. And (laughs) I mean, a little little bit, but please. And I, I just did that very deliberately. And in doing so, I was able to meet women with whom I connected not just as, you know, mom friends or friends of convenience, but as lifelong life partners, really. Because once you let go of those, those trappings and get to just the real shit, that's when you meet your people. That's what we all want, right? We just want the realness from each other. And yet we're all feeling this pressure to be everything perfect. Of course. It's exhausting. You mentioned anxiety. It was something that you know personally. Is there a point in your life when you realized, hang on a second, I think there might be anxiety? Or what did your journey look like or start with? Well, I, I grew up with uh, in a family that very much, we were the get over it family. There was no real talk of emotions, really, um, which, which isn't a slam on my parents. It's how It's just how they were raised as well. It's like, oh, you're sad, get over it something stressing you out, fix it. And so it was really jarring to me as I got older. And maybe 10 years ago, I started dealing with with what I now recognize as clinical anxiety. And it manifested as just crippling insomnia, like literally not sleeping at all for multiple days, which makes you crazy, by the way. Oh my gosh, yes. There's oh nothing my God. like you hallucinate and, and the whole thing. And I still was like, well, I should be stronger than this. I should be better than this. I should deal with my shit. And then what happened was I had my son and I wasn't dealing with my shit. I remember one day we were driving to TJ Maxx because I was, I was there. I was their brand ambassador for a minute and I hadn't slept in two days and I was driving and I was like, I feel like I'm drunk. 
because I, I was that tired and I was like, this is, da- this is dangerous. And, um, then after I had my daughter, I was like, this, that's it. That's it. And I wish it hadn't been because I felt the need to, it should have been doing something for myself, like fixing the anxiety for myself. But of course, as mothers, um, a lot of the times it takes wanting to take care of your children or be a better mother to make changes in your own life. But I went and I saw a doctor and I went on, you know, prescription medication. And that was such a, just a tidal shift in my life where I started being able to, instead of having this, this like beast inside me, it was like, I could take the beast out and hold it in my hand and sort of look at it and turn it around and say, you know, which parts of this are real and which parts of this are just my mind attacking me. Mm. The insomnia, was it loud thoughts keeping you up at night? It's called ruminative thinking. Ruminative thinking. Ruminative thinking. Yeah. So my insomnia manifested as like, you know, death exists. (laughs) It exists. Let's think about that all night. Right. uh, That happens to be something that you can't really resolve. There is no like getting up and writing it in a notebook and and saying like, well, I'll deal with that tomorrow. So (laughs) it's like an inability to, my mind held on to things like a Rottweiler. It was like, I just, I'm not letting that go. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was how that worked. And there's no peace in that, right? You're like, "Mm, yeah, now that it's not going to leave me alone. No. And I think we all struggle with these large sort of meta crises, like our parents aging, us aging, our children racing through childhood at the speed of light. These are all issues that, like I said, they're part of the human condition, but there is a way to not get over them, but to step outside of them. And to have some perspective on them. And that's something that I didn't know was possible until I would say fairly recently. Mm. Perspective. I think that's an amazing word. When you said that the medication helped you be able to take the beast and those thoughts and those mean thoughts out and look at them in the light rather than just immediately be sucked into them. Well, yeah. And I, you know, of course it wasn't that simple. Like it wasn't like I take pill, feel better been a really ongoing process. And this, this whole past year has been insane. Like I got divorced, I moved to a new town, I've been, you know, helping my kids cope with the divorce, I had a breakup for the ages with someone new. And now I'm doing things like dating. And it's, oh, I know, like talk about anxiety inducing. (laughs) But I was, well, here's, here's something I shouldn't share, but I'm going to anyway. Oh, please um, do. So, yeah, sure. So in my 20s, the last time I was single, I'm, I'm sort of a serial monogamous, so I haven't been single, single that many times in my life. And in my 20s, you know, you go out on a date with someone, and then you go on another date, and you're like, I'm in love. And then they don't, it doesn't go anywhere. And you're like, what's wrong with me? I am whatever. Like the, the I have a friend who calls it the tribunal of assholes that sits in your head. <laughs> Uh, they just—they're just like, oh, okay, sit down. We're gonna explain all the things that are wrong with you. And I actually just had that happen to me. Like, I went on a couple of dates with someone, and it was great. And I thought everything was great. And then he was like, mm, I'm just not really feeling it. And this actually happened this morning. And I was like, oh, okay, okay. The Tribune of assholes didn't come out. No, I mean a little bit. It, they started to. They were like, what's wrong with you? And then I was like, the answer is nothing. The answer is it should be hard to find someone you want to spend every day with. It, sh- it should be, it's winning a lotto ticket. 
And the reality is it has nothing to do with me. And uh, that's, or, you know, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. But it, it's also okay. I'm sitting here on the other side of this call going, how many of my clients just need to hear that? What you just said, because I think this is anxiety inducing, right? Like finding the right person for you and finding a partner. And I can think of a couple of my clients right now who are in this situation. And that that statement you just made, which is more true than every partner that I go on a date with should love me. What is more true is it should be hard to find mm-hmm. someone that you are really compatible with on both sides. That should be hard. Yeah, there's this, um, I'm going to butcher his name, but it's like Alain de Botton or something. He's French. And he wrote this article called The True Hard Work of Love and Relationships. And he talks about how he says every fall into love involves the triumph of hope over knowledge. You know, you know better. You know that, that it might be hard and you know that you might break up and you know you might cry, but you still maintain that hope. And he also says that, you know, when you find someone who you want to be with, what you're doing is you're, you're choosing your personal brand of suffering. So it's not like, you know, everything's going to be groovy. It's like everyone, everyone has their crazy, right? I certainly do, but everyone has their crazy. And so you meet someone, you see they're crazy and you're like, is this the kind of crazy I want in my life? Like, can I handle this crazy? Or is this just not my kind of crazy? Oh, and it's not a slam on the other person. It's not a slam on you. It's just like, do your crazies match up? Oh my, my, do you know the synergy of my conversations today? I had a coaching call earlier today and we were talking about just that much of the theme of our conversation today already, but like the letting our guards down and letting people see you're crazy because we're Mm -hmm. all crazy. All of us. Mm-hmm. We all have our brand of crazy and our idiosyncrasies, but that's what makes us us. Yeah, and it can, you know, over time, it can be really hard to maintain that sense of of hope, of course. And and anyone who's single into their 30s, 40s, 50s certainly understands that. You know, Candace Bushnell, Bushnell just published a new book called, like, Is There Still Sex in the City? And she's talking about like how, you know, what it's like to be dating in your 50s. I have this friend who said to me, I had met someone, I was very excited about them. And she was like, being a little bit pessimistic about it and like, take it slow and take it easy. And I was like, I know, but I just like it so much. And she was like, you know what? It's kind of lovely that you still have so much hope. And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, am I opening myself up to the possibility of getting hurt? Yeah, but I just don't really see any other way to live. Oh, I like this digression of talking about love because I think... (laughs) I know, this just went on a a big tangent there. But I like it because I feel like it's one of the most anxiety-inducing things, being in a relationship with someone else, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You can never really know them. Like, you know, they say the reality is like you're born alone and you die alone, and that's true. (laughs) It is indeed. That That is a scary thing. And also, once you really let yourself know that it is so freeing. It's so freeing. I also, I always used to say like my husband and I, my ex-husband, he and I would refer to life as our life as a singular. And when we got divorced, I remember thinking, oh, I don't know. Like now it's like life is my life really worthwhile if I'm living it with no one there to bear witness, Mm. you know, like it's, it's just me. If no one hears the tree fall in the woods, did it, did it fall? And 
it has been so lovely realizing that our lives came together, but the story was always my own. It wasn't our story. It became our story for a while. But even when we were together, it was still my story. Oh, the story was always my own. Mm -hmm. So good. Talking about love and other things that we can't completely control, death, you mentioned another one. Uh, anxiety. So <laughs> I love death, all of that in between. Uh, anxiety and control, are they intimately tied together or do you see them as separate things? That's a really good question. I, I mean, I know I can only speak from personal experience, but the extent to which my desire to control has contributed to my anxiety is obviously profound. I controlled our house. I made it pretty. I controlled my career. I hated outsourcing anything. I knew I wanted to get married around age 27. So I did, you know, I created this narrative for my life and how it was supposed to go. And then just to get back to the really uplifting thing about death, I realized a couple of years ago that what I was really trying to control was the fact that the people I loved would die and leave me. And I would die too. And all of this desire to control my life and my surroundings and, um, you know, every little aspect was really about, was about that. And the, the process of letting go of the, 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 the daily structure and like the daily desire to control every little thing sort of frees you up to confront what you're, what you're really afraid of losing control of. And unfortunately, that is the true hard work of, I believe, of our 30s and 40s. I think that you know, this is this is the time in our life when we finally start having the wherewithal to do that work. Um, I certainly couldn't in my 20s because I was a freaking idiot. I mean, uh, I was like, <laughs> where is Jack Daniels? <laughs> That'll help. I like the fact you just brought up Jack Daniels. One of the best quotes I think I've ever written when it comes to anxiety and my personal experience of anxiety was something along the lines, it was a meme, something along the lines of drinking alcohol is like pouring gasoline on your anxiety. Have you seen that relationship with alcohol and anxiety? I know for myself that in my 20s, I was also a bit of a, I, I would say Muppet in terms of my drinking habits were unhealthy for sure. And I would always have an anxiety hangover. I never blacked out. I could never, I, it wasn't that I ever didn't know what I had been doing or anything like that. But the anxiety come Monday was like a pit in my stomach. And it was directly related to alcohol for me. It is so interesting and timely that you bring this up because I actually, so I went through this horrible breakup like maybe a month and a half ago. It was just, you know, total scam artist, sociopath situation. And I wrote about it extensively, which, which didn't really help my anxiety. Um, <laughs> no, you can it. read about but it on her blog. What happened was I, the, when we broke up, I just like got drunk and I like went and stayed with my girlfriends and went to Tahoe and I was just like, numb, numb, numb it all, go away, no feelings. And then I got home from Tahoe and I was like, oh, there, this problem exists. Numbing it is not helping. And I actually stopped drinking full stop I, for like a, a solid month. And that was a really interesting experiment because it was like once that numbing agent was sort of removed from the oeuvre. How do you pronounce that? Oeuvre? Oeuvre? Mm, I don't <laughs> from know. From my bag tricks that I could use. My ability to see it, things calmly skyrocketed skyrocketed. 
And, and I, and I don't know whether it's like a chicken or the egg situation, but all I know is it wouldn't help him. Yeah. You know? and, and I just read this article last night where this woman who's newly sober was talking about the prevalence of mommy juice, right? And how women these days, successful women in particular, there's this, this sense of like hard drinking is like a big part of the culture of mothers, working mothers, and just successful, like hardworking women in general. And part of it is this sense of like having to keep up with, we're awesome. But there's also this, it's not fair. The world isn't treating us fairly. We're supposed to work all day. We're supposed to handle the bulk of the childcare. A significant percentage of us make more than our spouses. And we're also supposed to be sexy. We're supposed to be available for, you know, wild sex on call and look amazing in a Victoria's Secret, whatever. We're just supposed to be able to do it all, all of it. And no wonder we're medicating ourselves. No wonder the meme of the the mom who deserves a glass or a bottle of wine at the end of the day has popped up because it's not, we can't take it. It's a terrible situation. Who could? So we're numbing out, right? And it's the easiest and most socially acceptable way to numb. That's right. Oh, it's not only socially acceptable, it's celebrated. It's celebrated even, yeah. Yeah, and... and- yeah. And it's, it's crazy. It's, I remember there was a New York Times article that talked about how the successful working mom, she comes home at the end of the day and her first drink is her way to say, I'm done. I'm out. Like I am done taking care of the kids. I'm done being like a baller employee. I'm done being a white. I'm just, I'm out. And I just really related to that. It's how a woman rewards herself, right? Yep. Another thing that really stood out to me when I picked up your gorgeous book, which is so fun, by the way, people, it's such a fun book, was the heavy conversation. I'm like, I swear it's funny. I swear. (laughs) It is so funny. And the first two words, just relax. (laughs) I was like, isn't that just the most useful thing someone can say to you when you're in the midst of anxiety? Have people said this to you? Just relax. And how has it gone down oh, for you? Yeah. Oh, you know, you should try a spin class. <laughs> I'm like, I'll try. You should drink celery juice in the morning. That'll fix it. I'm like, oh, okay. So the advice that people have for um, anxiety is legion. And it is all wildly unhelpful. Starting with, just relax. You should take a nap. Oh, should I take a nap? Should I take a nap and um, think about death? to go be with my thoughts and have insomnia strike once again yeah super fun oh so just Just relax just be present you should meditate oh okay and i you know all of this of course is well-meaning and and all of this stuff is helpful but it also can sort of uh, ali brosh she did hyperbole in half the the comic and then she wrote a book with the same title where she talks about her struggles with depression and anxiety And it's like, sometimes you just don't want to hear people explain away your anxiety or something that can just be dealt with because that's isolating, you know? I think this is is. such an important point and I don't want to gloss over it is that sometimes you just, and I, cause I think that the well-meaning people do this all the time, right? Is Mm -hmm. that they just minimize the experience. Right. Personally, I felt this huge impetus to perform. I'm great. And that goes back to, you know, alcohol and drinking and going out. It's like you, you're, you got to be always on and you got to never let them see you sweat. And for me, I think that 
I kind of got tired of performing. And there's this real fear that if I drop the act, if I stop being social and fun, if I admit I'm, I'm bummed out today, or I, I don't want to go out because I'm in a bad mood, or, or I want to go out, but I don't want to have to be like the life of the party. There's this fear that the people that you love will leave you because you're not, you're not following their expectations of, of who you should be. And that is a scary thing. We're talking about what didn't help, which was just relax, you know, try yoga, <laughs> take a spin class. Maybe you should be more present or you should go find a mat and meditate. People giving you that kind of helpful, oh, and the celery juice, people giving that kind of helpful advice really wasn't that helpful. What have you found has helped calm your anxiety? Is it getting more information? Is it practicing some of these things we've heard about calming techniques? Or is it different things for different situations? I think that what you said about information is really is really helpful. And for me, information comes from being open with other people and hearing their own experiences. And for example, back to dating, like I have been known to, if I'm nervous, I'll be like, I'm nervous. And I'll tell the person I'm going to go on a date with that I'm nervous. And invariably, they're like, oh my God, me too. Oh, and how gorgeous is that? Because then you have a real conversation. Right. Because of course they're nervous. And if they're not nervous, that means they're an alien and it probably won't work out anyway. So people talk about being present and being mindful and that I, I feel like the words have become so loaded with like cultural blah that like they don't even mean anything anymore to me. But slowing down does like forward thinking. Okay, I'm really tired right now. I have work to do. I have emails to return. So think forward. What, what will happen if I don't return this email for an hour? What will happen if I take a nap for an hour? And more often than not, the answer is the world will not catch on fire. My children and I will not end up on the street. And I've never been able to do that, to just slow down. Slow down. giving yourself that permission to take a nap, to read a book at your lunch hour instead of sitting and typing through it, the world doesn't end. And it is a pretty remarkable thing to experiment with and discover. Oh my gosh, you just mentioned giving yourself permission. Do you think that's been a hard lesson for you in terms of learning how to be like, I don't have to drive myself this hard. I can like let go of the reins a little bit. Uh, Yeah. And I I mean, especially freelancers. So I don't, you know, what percentage of your audience would relate to that. But if you're a freelancer, you're like, oh, I had a really good year. But next year, who knows? what could happen. But also you, you can probably worry about that in even a more traditional career. Like what if I get fired? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And I always felt like any second that I wasn't working, I was setting myself up for potential destruction, like in a, in a very superstitious way. Like I, like if, if I go to this movie and don't bang out extra blog posts, like what if I get sick tomorrow and then I have nothing to put up So I always was like working 20 steps ahead and yeah, like I, that's just, it's just this like crazy self-perpetuating cycle where it's never enough. 
and you never get to slow down. You never get to slow down. I just like the way you call it slowing down. I work with a lot of people who are uh, burning out in a traditional sense in corporate jobs. And obviously anxiety is intimately tied up in the symptoms of burnout as well. And you're a hundred percent right. Like the people who come to me do not want to be told uh, to go and take a deep breath in the corner and get on a meditation cushion because they're like, this is going to help me write the second. <laughs> right. Well, also people want immediate gratification nowadays, which makes therapy a hell of a challenge for therapists because because that's just not how it works. Mm, yeah. Right. We want we want like we want to go into a therapist and say, fix it. <laughs> I have this problem. Fix it. Fix it right now. I've been in therapy for four years and like three weeks ago, she was like, there you go. Now we're getting somewhere. I spent so much money. But the work. (laughs) And we're only now getting there. Uh, Have you ever seen Tim Ferriss's TED Talk on fear setting? And that's my accent there, fear setting. Oh, I was like, what did you say? (laughs) Fear setting. Fear setting? Yes. No. So you have to watch it. Tim Ferriss, people listening, if you haven't heard of him, I think it's a really interesting idea. He has struggled with bipolar, depression, and been suicidal multiple times in his life. And he is a big time self-help guy, if you haven't heard of him. No, I know who he is. He's the uh, four-hour work week. He's the four-hour work week guy. So he talks about how anxiety has been crippling to him throughout his life. And in his TED Talk, he just went off script and decided last minute he was going to be really real and authentic. And he talks about how he does something called fear setting, where he just looks his scariest and when you said forward thinking he looks at his scariest ideas or thoughts like my whole business will collapse if I go overseas for three weeks and the IRS will be after me and whatever it might be and then he really looks at those and goes well what can I do about it now to minimize that happening and he just says that and I'm butchering this people go watch the TED talk but by actually looking and staring down at his greatest fears that they become far less scary. That when you really go to, what is the worst thing that can happen if I don't reply to this email till the end of the day? Nothing. Nothing's going to happen, right? And and you mm-hmm. mentioned it in that idea of forward thinking, the very thing that he talks about as well. Yeah, and I think even when it comes to those those grand things, that will happen. You know, things like so a major anxiety for myself. I know a lot of other a lot of other parents. It's like my children grow older. And I missed it. Like, I just missed it. I missed their childhood. I wasn't present enough. I wasn't there. And I, someone said something to me once, and she was like, well, the alternative is them not growing up. And I was like, oh, yeah. And so, you know, I think ahead to them being 20, and I'm like, but, 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 I'm going to have missed it. I'm going to want them to be two again and whatever. But also, they're going to be like these beautiful people that I'm excited to get to know in their 20s. So, you know, putting myself in a state of profound anxiety about the fact that they're not going to stay two forever, I can do that. Sure. Or I could just not. I could just not. I could just not. I could just not. (laughs) 
<laughs> so good. I feel like our conversation has been so serious, but your book is actually hilarious, people. Like, it's oh, hilarious. And I should have known it would be because as soon as I read your author blurb, I was like chuckling out loud, people. So Jordan's author blurb reads, her hobbies include creating unnecessary complications, insomnia, and maintaining an impressive collection of fake plants. Love it. <laughs> Do you find? I don't see why anyone would have live plants. They make such good fake ones. You know, and I'm they just, don't die. I'm just looking at a plant behind my desk right now, and I'm like, oh, it's not looking so perky. I do much better with fake plants. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> uh, of course, and I, I, you know, I, I wrote about them like back in the day on my site, and everyone's like, they're so tacky. You're so tacky, and I'm like, yep. Oh, sure am. You know what else I am? Someone with a house full of beautiful plants that I'm not gonna kill. Call me tacky. I probably have like a half-half split in my house. Do you find that you do have the ability to laugh at yourself and laugh at your anxiety? Or do you find that that is really hard to do when you're in the moment and you need something else to kind of help you step out of it? I personally feel like laughing yourself is, is like the only way to go. Like I went on this, I went on this bike ride a couple of months ago and turns out, you know how they say like you never forget how to ride a bike? Uh, well, I, I forgot. I forgot how to ride a bike. And I was with all these like very cool people who were being very cool in Venice and like they had neon lights on their bikes. And there was a guy with a fur coat with a boom box. And it was all like very, you know, visual and artsy and everything. And I'm like the asshole, like pulling up the rear. And I could not stop falling. I couldn't stop falling. I, it, it was, it was actually astounding. My friend was there and she was like, are, are you Okay. Like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> because I just could not stay upright. And I, I did actually figure out what was going on, which is that I, I, I ride a motorcycle and I was treating the bike like a motorcycle, like flinging my feet out to the side <laughs> when I came to a stop, which does, which works on a motorcycle, but on a bike, you just fall over. Um, and, <laughs> and I, you know, I guess I could have been embarrassed. Like, I don't know. I didn't know these people. They were clearly having like this very Zen time and I was clearly ruining it. But I just thought it was the funniest thing that had ever happened to me. I, I just I, like, and I don't know if anyone else thought it was funny. And honestly, I didn't care. <laughs> it's like, this is amazing. This is so funny. <laughs> like, was... I'm going to ask you the intermission questions now, Jordan. Oh, okay. is this like a speed round? It is kind of like a speed round, but I really am not that speedy. So it could take us a while. We're going to see. All right. No anxiety though. No anxiety. Are you a morning person or a night person? Morning. What is... Do I have to elaborate on that? <laughs> if I make you. I not... mean, I mean, like morning, I, I don't know. I ha honestly have no idea anymore because I have small children. And so that like full, put a full stop to my ability to sleep past 7am ever for the rest of my life. It was just so loud. So I, I don't think I'm a morning person necessarily by choice, but <laughs> I have become one. How old are your kids now? Seven. Oh my God. Wait, they just had, uh, my daughter just had her fifth birthday and my daughter and my son is going to be eight. Oh my gosh. Our kids are very similar in age. Do you know, talking about anxiety, cause I said we weren't going to, but now I'm going to go back there. Uh, when I was looking on your site, I was like, how many of us have had that anxiety about having our second child? I had that anxiety of having my second child and going, could I possibly love another child as much as this mm -hmm. one? This first yeah. One? That post that you're referencing is actually, I think it's called the post I wish I had read before having my second child is the most read post on my site ever, I think. 
yeah. And in it, I talked about, yeah, like, how could I possibly love someone as much as I love my son? Like when this baby arrives, it will necessarily take away from from my son. And uh, like, I'm screwing up this beautiful little balance that we have. Oh and, my I, gosh. And, I, and I think that that's something that I mean, I don't know how you don't relate to that. But I'm sure there are some people well, you know, what? also, I'm an only child. So I had no experience with sibling love and, and, and sort of multiple children in the household. Mm. I kind of grew up like an only child. So I wonder if that's why that was bigger for me. But I would say not if there was a lot of people, you know, if that's your most read blog post. I definitely had that anxiety of like, I don't know what a second child looks like. More so than I had with, I was not concerned about loving a first child. But having enough room to love a second, I was. And I'll just tell you people, there is always enough room. There is always enough room. It's like it just, it keeps just growing. Your heart just grows bigger. What's on your bedside table at the moment? Oh, I feel like I should go in there. Um, (laughs) And I don't know if there's any, like there's a box with like 20,000 notes that my five-year-old has written me in like totally legible language. It's so cute, but I can't read any of them. I am currently reading a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which I highly recommend. It's actually written by a therapist about her experience of going through therapy and giving therapy to other people. And it was recommended to me by my therapist. Oh, (laughs) that's a really good one. And I have uh, two non-working lamps because ain't nobody got time to fix those things. I know, right? I live live in the darkness. (laughs) What is your favorite self-care activity, Jordan? Bachelor in Paradise. I feel that that's really (laughs) like a positive life choice to watch Bachelor in Paradise religiously. It's it's wonderful. Must-see TV. Yeah, no, I actually do this. This sounds like I'm a healthier person than I am, but I stretch every night, like while I watch TV, like I'm not, you know, like going to classes or anything, but like just the act of like stretching and stretching and stretching for like a solid 45 minutes and doing whatever feels good. I don't know. I feel like it makes a big difference. Do you think self-care again, when we're talking about, like, I feel like self-care has become a bit of a cliche along with, you know, mindfulness presence. Do you feel like any version of self-care and you can choose a different word, has a part to play in managing or relieving your symptoms of anxiety? Um, I feel like self-care, like you said, self-care has become such a like uh, catchphrase that now that's another fucking thing we have to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, are, you, are, you, are you practicing self-care while you're also doing all the other things? Because and if I you're remember, not, you're letting yourself down, right? Of course. Of course. And I remember um, a few months ago, I, I would, you know, I'd put my kids to bed and then I would engage in inc- aggressive self-care, <laughs> I called it, where I would simultaneously get in the bath, read the articles I've been waiting to read all day while watching Hulu with a mask on my face and a glass of wine in my hand. And that's not relaxing. <laughs> I, I just have this picture of... Look how hard I'm doing self-care. Oh, yeah. I'm simultaneously, like, microplaning my heels and, like, manicuring my fingers. And, like, I got to get it all in. And so I, I've tried to sort of shift my mindset about what self-care means. And I, to me, self-care means doing less self-care. Honestly, mm. less. I just love the fact that, like, how many women are going, oh, yeah, I'm kind of now, now self-care is on my to-do list. It's like, oh, no, we don't. Yeah, we've we've made it into a thing that now it's another thing to add to the list of of a successful woman, right? Of course, yes. Mm. 
I wrote my first book was titled, I would just like to say for the record, I objected to this title, but there you go. It was called Ramshackle Glam, The New Mom's Haphazard Guide to Almost Having It All. And I, I insisted on putting in the almost and my editor wanted to say The New Mom's Guide to Having It All. But even with that almost in there, that title bothers me. It just bugs me. I just, I, I really, really like that's so fundamentally opposed to how I, to the message I want to give to um, myself, my daughter, anyone who reads my site that, yeah, fortunately, no one, no one reads that book. <laughs> no one ever really did. So it's not that much of a problem. Do you have a book that is a favorite? The big activity book series is like my clear favorite. I mean, it's, it's like our baby. So there's the big fat activity book for pregnant people, the big activity book for anxious people. And then coming out early next year is the big activity book for digital detox. Oh, we're so needing that. Right. Man on my And what's funny is when I, when I, when Aaron and I wrote the big activity book for anxious people, it was like, you know, two years ago, because that's how the publishing industry works, you know, it's really caught up to the times. Um, <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, like, geez, this is so topical right now. I wonder if it'll still be topical two years from now. Mm. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's yeah. And so the same thing with digital detox. I'm like, I wish it could come out now. I wonder if it'll still be relevant. Oh my gosh. Year. Yeah, I have a feeling it will be. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I think it just becomes more and more relevant, right? Yeah. What is one thing in your day that you can't do without Jordan? I cannot leave my bed unmade. Oh, how, how OCD is that? I, I cannot do it. It makes me like profoundly distressed to walk into my room and see an unmade bed. Other things I can't live without include coffee, obviously. And I guess that's it. My, I wish I would like my phone. Like I, I, I hate that, but it's like the constant scrolling, the scrolling of the news, but I'm working on that and keeping with digital detox. Hence the reason you wrote the book, Digital Detox. I'm so bad at taking my own advice, though. <laughs> How would you describe, this is a heavy one, Jordan, you ready? How would you describe I'm ready. the soul? Do you believe in a soul? I talk about this frequently with my children. So my children are sort of preternaturally uh, tuned into matters of religion and like the spiritual world in a way that freaks me out because I was raised atheist, like very firmly atheist. And what I've found is that something interesting about having kids is they'll ask you these really big questions and you're like, all right, I have to explain this now. And then in explaining a concept to your children that you, you don't even know how you're going to do it, but as you explain it, it's like you find out what you believe. Yeah. Oh my god. And my son said to me when he was he might have been like two. He was little. And my mom's cat died. And he said, what happens when you die? And I was like, oh, shit. This is oh, really? Like, you're two. Gosh. And I, I know. And what I said to him, and I remember being like, I remember thinking what my father said to me when I was about six, which was when I asked the same question, he said, well, they put you in a hole in the ground and that's it. And I was like, okay, so don't say that. Yeah, that didn't, <laughs> that, that didn't serve me so well. <laughs> no, that took like 30 years to get over. So I said to him, you know, you know, your body has blood and bones and skin. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, and then there's something else. There's something that makes you, you. And he was like, yeah. And I said, it's not something you can touch. It's just you. And I said to him, so when you die, the body 
your skin, your bones, your blood just gets tired. And that part of you that makes you, you just goes and it rejoins the rest of the world. And he was like, Oh, okay. And I was like, Oh my God, that is what I think. And, and it was a really beautiful moment of, um, you know, our kids teach us too. Yeah. Of understanding yourself. Uh huh. What does fulfillment mean to you, Jordan? I think fulfillment to me means finally relaxing into the fact that this is my life. I'm living it right now. I'm not waiting for it to start. There's nothing that's going to happen that's going to all of a sudden make me be like, well, now this, like I got there, now I'm really living. And I remember feeling that very profoundly in my 20s. Like once my career started, like that'd be my real life. Like I was just in a holding pattern until my life started. Or once I had kids, that would be my life started. Or once I got married. And I'll tell you, going through a divorce and and some career shifts that I've gone through in the past couple of years, that'll really screw up your, your personal narrative of like <laughs> what your life was supposed to look like. But like we said, like, this is my story. Just because it's not fitting the narrative that I, I thought it would, this is, this is it. Like, and so that is something that I, I don't do perfectly, but very much aspire to because I think when you when you relax into acceptance of the fact that you are living your life right now that is very oh my gosh I think that's huge not waiting for your life to start but realizing that you're living it now that this is your life and accepting that right like accepting that this is my life and I'm in it oh all right so transitioning out just a couple more questions what do you wish that people who didn't personally experience anxiety knew about it, Jordan? Well, I don't know that anyone doesn't experience anxiety. I, I think people have different coping mechanisms. You know, I think some people maybe are excellent at coping or some people cover up their anxiety. But people who, who would identify as not having anxiety, I would say it's, what's important to me is to really recognize that it's A, it's not a choice and B, it's not a fatal flaw. It, it is it is simply another aspect of what makes us weird and wonderful and complicated and fascinating. It's just another aspect of what makes us us. That's right. It's not something to run away from. It doesn't make someone irrevocably crippled. It is simply part of that person. Jordan, if you could leave listeners with just one thought today, what would it be? Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> just that if, if anxiety is something that you struggle with, I relate to that so hard and I feel you. And I also know that as bad as it can get, it can always get better. And I'm living proof of that because I used to hallucinate bananas in my bathroom cupboard when I had insomnia. So it doesn't get much worse. <laughs> so if you two hallucinate bananas, I feel you and I'm with you and life gets better. I really appreciated having a conversation with someone who gets what it's like from the inside of living with chronic anxiety. I feel like Jordan shared so much relatable wisdom in here. I know that we kept saying it throughout, but her big activity book for anxious people, who she co-wrote with Erin Williams, is funny and brilliant. It's not a book that you read cover to cover, but rather one full of fun and entertaining activities that will help you laugh perhaps when you previously felt like you might be ready to cry. 
You'll find a link to that in the show notes. If you want to find out more about Jordan, head to Ram Shackle Glam, her lifestyle blog about her experiments in fashion, beauty, love, decor, parenting, and life in general. So that's obviously over at ramshackleglam.com. Finally, if you loved it, please review it, listen to more episodes, and don't forget to subscribe. Oh, and tell a friend, would you? I love it when people tell their friends, because I believe we should share all the good things with our friends, right? I thoroughly...